Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The year is 1941. And the bird, 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 the bird is the word. The movie, The Maltese Falcon. And welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. Paul Shear will be in here in just a second. But as you know, this is the podcast where every week we watch a film from the AFI Top 100 list of 2007. How have these films held up? How do they relate to the movies of today? Would we keep them on the list if we were voting again? And the tragic news of last week is that we had Nashville on the show and the Unspoolers have voted it off. Alas, Paul and I, were, we, we really grew to love that little messy ambling crazy experimental film. So why don't I read some pros and cons about Nashville? Uh, Steve Wagner wrote, this movie was just rambling nonsense. Remake this movie, but have it be Lil Nas X and his fight against big Nashville, Nashville, and then the cast grows progressively as he has more and more people to his subsequent remixes. Which, yes, I would also watch that. And it will probably also be rambling nonsense, and that's fine. Uh, on the pro side, we had Kobe Jones who said, this might be the rare movie to know the ending beforehand, to fully appreciate the moments getting there. Otherwise, the movie may just seem like a collection of scenes with loosely connected characters that otherwise seem pointless to be watching for over three hours. Travis Burgess said, For the love of God, don't fall in love with Walker, who I kind of did. He was the political candidate driving around with his van being like, a new national anthem, which I guess maybe will be by Little Nas X. Uh, Travis Burgess says, His entire shtick is winning over a vapid media. He is definitely a corollary to modern day and not the one y'all think. Yikes. Okay, thank you for that wake-up call. And also, Andrew Harmon says, As somebody whose family comes from Nashville and who went to high school there, allow me to vouch for Goo Goo Clusters, as we were poking fun of the Goo Goo Clusters ads that exist when you go to the Grand Old Opry. He says, Goo Goo Clusters have been in existence for more than 100 years, and they are indulgently amazing. Granted, a non-American may use the the treat as proof that Americans eat too much sugar, but so be it. And you know what? That is fair. That is fair. And I will say it's not quite a goo-goo cluster, but I will stick up for the Chunky Bar, which also has raisins, because I think we are really dramatically maligning raisins as a chocolate can't conduit of some sort. 
So that was last week, and now on to this week, we are going to be talking about the Maltese Falcon. And our calling question was, what would you give up to have the Maltese Falcon? So let's hear. I would definitely trade a Klondike bar for the Maltese Falcon. I would trade my custom-made gardenia-scented business cards for the Maltese Falcon. My virginity. I'd have to get it back. I would give up the Millennium Falcon for the Maltese Falcon. In order to get the Maltese Falcon, I would watch a remake of Nashville with all of the parts played by Adam Sandler. I would trade my two letters of transit from Casablanca for the Maltese Falcon. I would give up my most precious possession, my conversation starter coffee cup from the Unfold Facebook group. Hello, sweetheart. Since the Falcon is the stuff dreams are made of, I would give up all of my dreams for the rest of my life. Keep up the great work. Hope you enjoy the worst healthy Bogart impersonation ever. Okay, to be fair, I would also totally watch a remake of Nashville with all of the parts played by Adam Sandler. In some way, that reminds me of when he played a magical shoe salesman. Does anybody else remember that film? Yes. Okay, fine. I will take that. I will take that. Although I don't think it's worth the Maltese Falcon, but I would definitely watch it. So with that, let's welcome Paul in. Let's talk about Maltese Falcon. The year is 1941. The average movie ticket price is 25 cents. The attack on Pearl Harbor brings the U.S. into World War II. M&Ms are invented so that soldiers can enjoy chocolate without it melting. Escape maps are being smuggled into POW camps, successfully helping 35,000 allied POWs escape. We have the first appearances by comic book characters Captain America, Bucky, Aquaman, and Green Arrow. And this is the year that the first TV commercial airs on NBC, a 10-second ad for Belova Watches. It costs the advertisers $7 for the entire spot. Time Magazine intended on naming Dumbo the Elephant as its Mammal of the Year, but after Pearl Harbor, they award the cover to FDR. The popular movies are Citizen Kane, Dumbo, and today's film, The Maltese Falcon. It comes in number 31 on the 2007 AFI list, down eight points from the list before. Amy? I'm sorry. I'm still caught up on the idea of them swapping out Dumbo for FDR last minute. I know. That, like, office meeting of, you guys, oh, my God, guess what? We really have to change our cover. I know there was a bombing. <laughs> I mean, look, thankfully they did. I mean, really, if Time Magazine gave it to Dumbo weeks after Pearl Harbor, it would have been a real, like, oh, all right. It would have lost its stature pretty quickly, yeah. I think. And yeah, weirdly, it wouldn't have surprised me at all if that happened Mammal today. of the year. <laughs> Amy, Maltese Falcon, who's in it? What's it about? Maltese Falcon. This is the story of a detective in San Francisco named Sam Spade, who gets caught up into a case with a woman who keeps changing her name from Wonderly all the way down to Bridget O'Shaughnessy. This case involves a Maltese Falcon, a priceless bird that is, I think, 400 years old when the story picks up, worth gazillions, covered in rubies, covered in gems. The people who are on the hunt after it include Peter Lorre and this amazing debut performance by a man named Sidney Greenstreet as Casper Gutman. And this is the third time that the Maltese Falcon, a story that was written by Dashiell Hammett, had been put on the screen this decade. It was put up in 31. It was a flop. It was put up in 35 as a Betty Davis comedy. It was a flop. And first-time director and longtime screenwriter John Huston said, I want this flop picture to be my debut. Those guys were idiots. I can do it good. And he was correct. Right. And those first two films, I think, focus more on the female character. I don't even understand how there was a comedy version of the Maltese Falcon. I mean, I kind of want to seek that one out. 
But for this version, they really centered it on the novel it was based on and put Sam Spade front and center. And I think that was the secret sauce for why this movie then finally connected, which is it should. It, it's about Sam Spade. I mean, I don't know how you make this movie like based on it, but not about Sam Spade. Yeah. I mean, John Huston, who had been this like huge go to screenwriter in Hollywood off and on for a decade, at least at this point. He was like, the problem with those other two movies is that the writers of those films tried to put their own stamp on it. Right. And Dashiell Hammett is Dashiell Hammett. Let Dashiell Hammett be Dashiell Hammett. Make Dashiell Hammett strip down and mean again was basically what he said. Well, if you do want to hear a little bit of the comedy one, it's called Satan Met a Lady. The lady is Betty Davis. Here's a little bit from the trailer. Would you mind very much, Mr. Shane, taking off your hat in the presence of a lady with a gun? <laughs> so you're the man I hired to protect me. <laughs> The various killings were all the young lady's fault. Oh, nonsense. Nonsense? Listen, Mr. Shane. So you had it all figured out, have you? Certainly. You crossed Travers in Hong Kong. You double-crossed Espinosa, and then you triple-crossed to a pharaoh. Wow. The, the girl, girl men never forget. <laughs> well, I think pairing up or going back to the original script is, uh, I think, a recipe for success. And this film is actually, you know, very dark for the time, right? It's a little uh, harder edge because didn't Dashiell Hammett kind of launch his career in Hollywood with The Thin Man? Yeah, that was the thing he was really famous for at this moment was that Nick and Nora Charles franchise with the dog that we had just seen. Which, uh, by the way, I'm a huge Thin Man fan and I feel like that seems like more of the detective story of the time, like this kind of a Charlie Chan or these rich people or these drunk people, these very smart people. But here, I feel like we are introducing this character that is a little bit more hard-boiled, a little bit more dirty, uh, you know, reminds me a little bit of Double Indemnity in the sense that, you know, it, it just showed a seedier side. And, and I think a lot of people equate this film as being like the first film noir. And I wanted to ask you, Do you think that that's true? I think so in a lot of ways. I mean, you've got the shadows. You've got the woman you can't trust. You've got the man who's an anti-hero walking through who has his own moral code, but it could be broken in other people's eyes. Right. They don't use the word film noir when this film comes out, of course, because that genre didn't exist. Right. Like this film sort of launches the idea of it. But I think the one thing it doesn't have is it doesn't have narration. Right. You know, which... I think this film would die if it had narration. It doesn't need it at all. It moves so fast. The idea of then Bogart having to be like, oh, so then, uh, then I went over here. You're like, we, we can just see you do that. Yeah, I would also argue that it looks very much like Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane comes out this year. Citizen Kane is dark. I feel like this is uh, a film coming out at a time where, you know, we are coming out of the Great Depression. We're going into a war, uh, even though that that may not be totally a part of this. But um America is in a different spot. And I feel like it's quick to be judged as a film noir, but I I see Humphrey Bogart as a good guy. I mean, there's ambiguity, and I think part of the twist of the film is, oh, he is a bad guy. Oh, he is going to team up with them. No, he is solving this mystery, and he does do the right thing at the end. And I think a film noir often shows you someone who goes down a bad path and then pays the ultimate consequence. I mean, we do have a femme fatale, but I don't think even the shooting of this is as extreme as film noir that we see, you know, the the lights streaming through the, you know, the blinds and things like that. I mean, it has definite elements. And when I watched this, I definitely felt elements of Chinatown as well. But I think it's a little different. I think it's more of a detective story that has more um, real world elements to it. It's a darker detective story. 
I mean, I can say that like the planting of a seed. You know, you right. see this Sam Spade character done this way with Bogart, and it plants the seed where people are like, well, I want to write that character. You know, and maybe yeah. I can't call him Sam Spade, but I'm going to call him whatever I want to call him. And I'm probably not going to do it as well as this movie, to be honest. Right. But they're going to try, and they're going to put that character in all sorts of things. But he is also a corrupt dude at the beginning. He's having an affair with his coworker's wife. Doesn't really care about it. He his coworker dies, and he's like, "Ah, take his name off the door." I mean, I that, like that about him. I love that about him. When he gets the phone call that his partner is dead, which is like the second scene in the film, he has no emotion. I mean, he is an emotionless man, and I almost see a lot of uh, bad masculine stereotypes starting from this film because he is a hero. You do idolize him. I mean, you look at him like, I want to be like him. But he shows no remorse, no emotion, even with this woman who he's been cheating uh, with and her husband just died. He's incredibly cold. Um, even when he's kissing in this film, I don't even feel it. I don't feel like it's out of passion. I feel it's out of like, ah. Yeah, I can stick my dick into that. Like, you know, I feel like it's like that. Like, that's kind of like, you know, it's like they're like he says he's in love at one point. I'm like, bullshit. You're not in love. You're yeah, not in love. You have a sandwich with somebody and you get married somehow. I guess you're right. I mean, this whole movie, what takes place over the course of 72 hours? And they're like, I'm in love with you. Like, wh- how? How? <laughs> what? What transpired? Every interaction you've had with this woman I've seen. It's been almost incredibly plot driven. I don't think you know a thing about her. Uh, so it does, like it makes me think when I watch these old 40s movies, I'm like, these people are like, they're love crazy. They're, they don't know anything. It's like, it's almost like you're hot. I'm hot. Let's have, you know, it's like the people are so down to have sex. They have to say, I love you. <laughs> yeah, it's like if a bunch of 15 year olds suddenly had power to get married all the time. They're like, I'm kind of horny. What do I do? I got to get married. Got to get divorced. I mean, it's crazy how many people get married and divorced on the same day in the past. Really? Like, what are you doing, man? They're like, let's go to Mexico in the morning. Let's get married at night. I am blown. And then let's get divorced. The next- and let's get divorced the next day. It's beautiful. It's like Nicolas Cageian. Uh, I'm very, and, you know, speaking of Nicolas Cage, he wants to remake The Thin Man. He's been talking about that for years. And by the way, I'm in. I'm so in. And by the way, you don't have to change it. It should just be Nick Cage solving mysteries. I'd Ooh, be is so, that what you would call it? Nick, Nick Cage, Cage solving mysteries? He's a thin man. Um, you <laughs> I know mean, what? that's no worse than the other titles they are kicking around and they are trying to develop this Maltese Falcon. Because mm. I think maybe because it was such a jinx with the first one that was a flop that they were like, let's call it something else. Let's call it something else. So they had one name that was kind of bad. They were going to call it Night from Malta. And then they came up Oof. with a name that is even worse. It's so bad. I love it. It's called The Gent from Frisco. Wow. The Gent from wow. Frisco. Can you? Who's The Gent even? I don't even know. Huh. Well, I guess it would be Sam Spade. He's, he's a gent. He's a real gent. Um, <laughs> you know what I think makes this film, I think, captivating and in, in its legacy so long is because when you look at you know, the writing of this. It is coming from a place of someone, Dashiell Hammett was a detective in the Pinkerton Agency, and he based these characters on real people. So it wasn't just a Hollywood screenwriter. And I know that John Huston adapted the book, but the idea of the story was based in reality. Like Cairo was somebody that Dashiell Hammett kind of busted for forgery. And, you know, and the idea... And Gutman was somebody that... I think Gutman, the character was based on this person that he was assigned to tail because they thought he was a German spy. Oh, And so he started tailing this guy and he said he had never 
shadowed a man who bored him so much. But I think what I think what you're really saying that is so right is that John Huston, as a writer, really respects Dashiell Hammett as a writer. You know, this is a guy who is a writer saying, I trust what you did on the page. I don't want to mess with it. What I want to do is bring it out and do it perfectly. Yeah. And you, can, you sense that respect in it. It feels like he shot the book more or less kind of exactly what it was. There's a few extra awkward scenes. Like, you know, in here, there's the moment where Gutman momentarily convinces Spade that Wonderly stole a thousand bucks from him. Right. In the book, there's a really awkward scene where before he trusts her, he makes her take off all her clothes and she's furious. Sam Spade is like, take off all your clothes. I'm going to search you for the money. And it drives oh, a real wow. wedge between them before the climax. And here, Bogart's like, he looks her in the face and he's like, nah, she good. Right. Well, I mean, this is a movie that really is walking that line with the censors too, because I mean, he is viewed as being vulgar, which I can't even figure out where that vulgarity. He's a gent. How's he vulgar? I mean, yeah. But like, and uh, you know, and obviously they, you know, it's, I mean, whenever I do my research, I'm like, and clearly they had sex. I'm like, oh, that's what happened there? They did, right? Because she's like, someone ransacked my apartment last night. Well, where was she last night? Last time we saw, she was at his place. She didn't go home. Exactly. And Uh, what's so fascinating about casting Mary Astor for that mm -hmm. is, you know, I was watching this film and I was thinking, Mary Astor looks so prim and proper. It's hard for me to kind of see her as a femme fatale for a while. You know, because we're used to more the like, the I have boobs out to here, hair down to here, I'm puckering my lips, you know, the Jessica Rabbit kind of yeah. femme fatale. And she's sort of a little nervous, a little uptight kind of seeming at the beginning, you know, very ladylike, yeah. giant fox furs. But to audiences who saw this movie in 1941, Mary Astor was this woman whose diary got out when she was in this really messy divorce. Mm. And her diary was published. And her diary was basically like, I boned him, I boned him, I boned him. That guy gave me 20 orgasms in one night. Like just listing it all out. So everybody at the time thought Mary Esther was kind of a hot nymphomaniac. Well, I mean, she really plays this part so well. And it's a very, um, it's a tough role to play because she's constantly switching. At a certain point, I don't know what side she's on. And I feel like there is an element with Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity. Um, and we were talking about this with another uh, actress recently. I was trying to remember what it was. But when you watch these films, like, you know, oh, they are the femme fatale. She's not playing the archetype of the femme fatale. And this is maybe going back to this idea of be- being an actual film noir. She's a mysterious woman. You literally don't know where she's at. At the end of this movie, I'm like, does she love him? Is she trying to escape? It's much, you know, for me, I feel like I know it in the other films. But here... I don't know. I don't know where she's standing at any given point because she changes her name so easily. She reveals information so easily. She manipulates him so easily. And she's been doing this in the attempts to get this Falcon. Exactly. And what I find fascinating about it is that he knows she's lying from the beginning. Sam Spade always knows she's lying. I mean, Do this, you believe that? I do. Listen to this clip really early on. You've got to trust me, Mr. Spade. Oh, I, I'm so alone, afraid. I've got nobody to help me if you won't help me. Be generous, Mr. Spade. You're brave. You're strong. You can spare me some of that courage and strength, surely. Help me, Mr. Spade. I need help so badly. I have no right to ask you. I know I haven't, but I do ask you. Help me. You won't need much of anybody's help. You're good. It's chiefly your eyes, I think, and that throb you get in your voice when you say things like, be generous, Mr. Spade. Yeah, I mean, but I feel like at this point, 
because his partner's been killed, he's very suspect of her. She's already revealed that she changed her name. Like, I feel like it's sort of like, yeah, yeah. Now that he's on to her, he knows. I feel like he's a little bit more aware. But I think that first scene when he goes, yeah, that's why we took you $200. I think he took his $200 because he believed her. I do believe, I mean, especially Archer. I mean, Archer was all in. Yeah. I mean, Archer, you know, we're talking about a morally ambiguous guy. Archer is like licking his lips at her, like, uh, like, like out of like a an old like Warner Brothers cartoon, and she turned into a chicken leg. I was like, all right, so they, like I was like when I revealed that guy was married, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, in Archer, he's just he's like a wolf in a cartoon, right? He's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It's like you, we want us. I mean, I wanted his eyes to go that big when he does get shot in the beginning. That's one thing I didn't feel held up. You know, I think when you look back on films like the uh, like the Usual Suspects, you see, oh, I looked at it the wrong way. Yes, and I see. But when you see Archer getting shot, he doesn't have the face of someone being shot by her, right? Like, I mean, that's the the twist at the end, the reveal, one of the many. But look, for the day and age, it was great. I just think that like that was one, something that I feel like would have been interesting to see. I think because he should have been like. You're a lady. What you doing with a pistol? Well, no, I think the idea that he was more at ease with her, the way that Humphrey Bogart describes it, is like he wasn't suspecting it. You know, and I mean, you have to do it that way. I, I'm not nitpicking it. I'm just, but it was something about it that I was like, oh, I love that she kind of got one on him without him even realizing it. And this was like, you know, where maybe just cut to it after he's been shot and you can just see him looking at her. You, you. That's a great, uh, you know, I'm, I'm auditioning for the role of Archer. Um, like, what do you think about the relationship between John Huston and Humphrey Bogart? Because, like, he pushes Bogart to dark places. If this sets the tone for the, you know, the lead in a film noir, Humphrey Bogart only goes darker and darker. You know, like, I mean, uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre, we've talked about this on the show, great film, but very dark Humphrey Bogart. He also does Key Largo, dark Humphrey Bogart. And then African Queen, it's kind of like the retired version of Humphrey Bogart's character from those things. Like, all right, he was a scoundrel. Now he's, you know, he he's a little bit lighter. He's a decaf version of that character. I mean, they were buddies, you know, mm-hmm. they were, they like loved to hang out. They were both drinkers. They drank a lot. They were both pranksters. I heard this story that once they played football with a Ming vase. Oh, really? You know, they're kind of destructive types. And I think from everything I've read, Bogart looked at Houston as just this endless pit of energy. He was like, this man just tears through life. He said making movies with him would get annoying the last three weeks because Houston would just already be bored and want to do his next movie. And just be like, come on, come on, come on. But he saw him as this man of huge appetites, which he definitely, absolutely, absolutely was. But I think they clicked. Although John Houston, when he would describe Bogart, one of his nicknames for him was The Monster. Because of his face. And and he described him this way, which I thought was actually really intelligent. He says, Bogey was a medium-sized man, not particularly impressive off screen, but something happened when he was playing the right part. Those lights and shadows composed themselves into another nobler personality. I swear the camera has a way of looking into a person and perceiving things that the naked eye does not register. Interesting. I love that idea. And And I feel like often, you know, this energy and attitude of a director, everything that we know about John Houston, we talked about him before, uh, is kind of reserved for our James Camerons, our Michael Bays, our, you know, give me the fucking camera, I'm going to get in there and I'll do it my goddamn self. But he is creating some really 
interesting stories with characters. It, it Like the fire is in the character and not in the action, if that makes sense. And yeah, because his films look beautiful. They're beautifully yeah. composed. They have, This movie has great dolly shots. You know, he's intelligent. He's got good use of music. He's making a really high-class quality picture. But there's something I like about his films that's a little bit recessive. Kind of like what we were talking about with Howard Hawks. Like he's willing to take a step back yeah. and make the movie the star, make his actors the star, well, and not be like, you pay attention to me, though? I'm, I'm here. I'm here behind the camera. Yeah, and, you know, I read something that, you know, the studio was very strict about how much this movie could cost and how it should come in, so much so that, you know, everything was completely lined up. All the shots, they knew exactly what they wanted. They shot the movie in order, which is always a rare thing, but I think it actually makes for better performances because – when you're doing something like this, which almost feels like a stage piece, there's very little that's happening besides like the cat and mouse between Humphrey Bogart and the young punk who looks nothing like a young punk, but that's okay uh, because that was the time. But his jacket's so big. He's, <laughs> he's got the biggest, he's like got an 80s style jacket. He's like David burning it up. He's got to hold his like Tommy gun in there. <laughs> uh, so, um, but it is, a, it's, a, it's a very much like a parlor piece. I mean, you are having a lot of, Heavy dialogue scenes. But anyway, what I read was, you know, he had storyboarded it out and kept it on such a tight schedule. I think it was six weeks to do the whole thing. He came in under budget. But what people said about working with him was he would let the actors take over the scene if they had a whim. He knew where he wanted them blocked. He knew how he wanted to shoot the scene. But he's like, if someone had a better idea, he would just drop it and go with it. And I think that's always a sign of a good director. And like you said, someone who's making the film the star, trusting the instincts of what's happening, not just the vision that you have conceived in your head. I mean, Alfred Hitchcock always is kind of saying the most boring part of making a film is the shooting of it because he had already shot it. And I think you talked about people like David Fincher think the same thing. It's like, I know how it's going to be. You just fill in the blank of how I've already seen it. Yeah, Ari Aster's the same way. He like storyboards the whole thing in his head. He knows the transitions. He knows how he's going to edit it. Wow. And, and Houston would say like, I didn't even know the name of half of my editors because he just made the film. He just shot right. the film exactly how it was and didn't have a bunch a bunch of takes. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah. It's basically the opposite of Altman in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, there's no extra 10 hours on this film. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You know, this movie is known a lot now for being the movie that made... Humphrey Bogart, a star. Like, mm -hmm. he'd been around forever. He'd been doing these kind of gangster parts. He's in The Petrified Forest, the one that we are talking about that has a yeah. really hot performance by Leslie Howard that people are like, if you want to know why she likes Ashley Wilkes, go watch that movie. He's there, but he'd been kind of kicking around, being the heavy, being the guy who gets beaten up at the end. And this is the movie that was like, boom, now we're going to pay attention to Bogart for real, for real. But when I went back and read the reviews of the time, a lot of them pointed that out. They're like, Bogart is a star now. But most of them led with John Huston 
They, they said A Star is Born was the first line of a positive review, wow. and they meant Houston. They're like, we have a new great talent. And it's beautiful to see that. Everybody at the time just recognizing now we have our own Hitchcock was kind of the thinking at the time. Wow. And it's interesting to think about this coming out at the same time or in the same year as Citizen Kane because here's another director that's really revolutionizing something. And obviously that's number one on the list and is the apex of what you can achieve as a filmmaker. But wow, 1941 brings out, and I talked about this earlier, like there is something going on in American culture that I think is allowing directors to make a darker tale, to to be a little bit more experimental, um, you know, maybe even be influenced a little bit more. And you'd know more about this than I would by like European directors and stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Like the cameraman here is a man named Arthur Edison, and mm-hmm. he really loved German expressionism. Because I think also maybe what's happening is, you know, German expressionism, of course, is like the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the cool camera angles, yeah. the stuff that doesn't look real, but it feels emotionally real and twisted and fascinating. Yeah. Part of what I wonder if if, if if this is all part of what's happening here, especially in the Maltese Falcon, is you have a couple people who are A, getting influenced by German expressionism, right. the look of it, because these films are now coming here. But also then you have people like Peter Lorre, who worked in that field, who worked with these directors and then because he was Jewish, he had to leave Europe and he had to come to the States. And there is sort of this transmission of talent in a way yeah. from the European style to here. I wonder if that's part of what's happening. Well, I, I mean, I, you have to just agree that something is happening where because they are they are doing that whole idea. Low key lighting. You have the thing where the cameras on the ground. We're looking up. It's like it's sharing a DNA. And I think there are times in whatever artistic field you're in where you see a sweeping change and and people are, you know, their collaborators, not maybe on the same project, but in the same field. And you start to steal and you start to listen. And, and yeah, what becomes popular in those small groups are almost more important because that affects the larger mass consumption of these things. Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite shots in this movie is just when the camera sees Gutman yeah. and it just gets low. And you, I mean, I don't know where they put the camera. It seems like they must have put the camera right at his crotch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're just looking up and he is this pyramid He shape. is the fat man. He looks so large to the point that when you see him later, you're like, oh, he's not that large. Yeah, I, I think mean, he's 260. That's not yeah. bad. Yeah. But yeah, they make him look like a mountain. And just, I mean, that is the expressionism. That is, this man is big and powerful and yeah. look how huge he is. And we're just, I mean- it's, I can't tell if that is his crotch, right? Because I can't tell. Let's say it's his crotch. Why not? Yeah. Until someone tells us we're crotch wrong. Which they will, yeah, until they'll tell us we're wrong on Twitter. But, uh, <laughs> but I mean, I'm impressed also. Like, did you, uh, did you hear about this whole idea uh, that they took like two days to do this big master shot? The, the scene where um, Gutman uh, explains the history of the Maltese Falcon to Humphrey Bogart. And, you know, in... And in many ways, it's like it, they took two days to set it up and the camera was never going to cut. and It was going to move in and move out. And very seamlessly, uh, you know, uh, it was like, here, this I, I wrote it down. So it's like the camera followed Green Street and Bogart from one room to the another, then down a long hallway into a living room. Then the camera moved up and down and what's referred to as a boom up and a boom down shot and then panned from left to right back to Bogart's drunken face and then pan over to Green Street's massive stomach uh, from Bogart's point of view. You know, it, it's that's a seven minute tape. Like we, I don't, I don't even realize that until I read about it afterwards. I mean, it's like it's the way I felt when I watched True Detective the first time. I was in the, but in the middle of that, I was like, wait, they haven't cut, they haven't cut yet. Like there's something so impressive about a big long shot. I mean, Robert Altman did one in The Player too. Exactly. I mean, I think the advice that 
John Huston was really my following when he was making this movie is a friend of his said, shoot every scene as though it's the most important scene in the film. Yeah. And just give it everything you've got. And also when he was gearing up to try to become a director, you know, he would be on sets a lot because he was a writer, because he knew everybody. And William Wyler was a guy that meant a lot to him. Wyler, of course, who did yeah. Ben-Hur. And he just was learning from the greats because he was knowing the greats and then taking ideas and then building them into it. And now I really, can we hear a little bit of that scene where yeah, Gutman explains the yeah. origin of the Maltese Falcon? I love this. All right, let's listen. In 1539, these crusading knights persuaded Emperor Charles V to give them the island of Malta. He made but one condition, that they pay him each year the tribute of a falcon in acknowledgement that Malta was still under Spain. You follow me? Uh-huh. Have you any conception of the extreme, the immeasurable wealth of the order of that time? I imagine they were pretty well fixed. Pretty well is putting it mildly. They were rolling in wealth, sir. For years they'd taken from the East, nobody knows what spoils of gems, precious metals, silks, ivory, sir. We all know the holy wars to them were largely a matter of loot. The knights were profoundly grateful to the Emperor Charles for his generosity toward them. They hit upon the happy thought of sending him for his first year's tribute, not an insignificant live bird, but a glorious golden falcon, crusted from head to foot with the finest jewels in their covers. Nelson, what do you think of that? I don't know. These are facts, historical facts. Not schoolbook history, not Mr. Wells's history, but history nevertheless. I mean, that actually is true. I looked this up, and there really was a Falcon tribute that Malto paid every year from 1530 into 1798. Oh, wow. Yeah, they actually did this. And then I went down like a really crazy rabbit hole, and I was like, does Malta have falcons? And Malta does. There's like right. a falconry. If you go Are you to Malta. play what a falcon sounds like? I thought about it. If, if, if I could have found a clip from the Malta mm-hmm. Falconry Center, which I spent a long time trying to find <laughs> a clip from the Malta Falconry Center, couldn't find it. So instead of that, what I did find is Malta is known for eight unique animals that you can only find in Malta. Do you want to know what they are? Yeah, what are they? Okay. The Maltese black chicken. Okay. There's the Maltese honeybee. Mm-hmm. The Maltese wall lizard. The Maltese ruby tiger moth. Okay. The Maltese freshwater crab. The Sicilian shrew. Uh, the Maltese goat. And Esther's gecko mite. It's a little mite that lives on geckos. Oh, I love that. I'm going to make my film the Maltese gecko mite. You should. I mean, it's called the Esther's gecko mite because the scientist who found it on the gecko named it after his wife because he said, quote, it is the only eternal gift I could give her. <laughs> Isn't that romantic? I mean, the most romantic thing I've ever heard. Amy, like, talk to me about what you think about a cast like this. Because I think a lot of the, the celebration of this film is like, oh my gosh, they got this cast, this amazing cast together. And this combination of actors, that's part of what's so magical. Because I think it is a lot of dialogue, a lot of fast-moving dialogue. It doesn't slow down, it doesn't dumb it down at all. Yeah, I mean, I love it when a movie makes actors. You know, Mm because I feel like now we're very much in this mindset of you got to get this A-list guy. If he doesn't do it, what are you going to do? You can't make this movie. There's not a lot of building up people. No, it's so fun to discover somebody in a performance for the first time. And and we become more and more reticent. We'll do it more in TV, I think, than anything else. 
Exactly. And I mean, this movie was Sidney Greenstreet's very first movie he ever made, wow. which is astonishing. I hear he was always really nervous on set. And you're like, you are this great imposing figure. How can you be nervous? But he was so good that then they started pairing up him and Peter Lorre. I think they did nine movies together. I love they it. They called them Little Pete and Big Sid, which is just adorable. <laughs> but by it's the adorable. way, as much as he was nervous, I did know that Humphrey Bogart and Sidney Greenstreet would do a little bit. You said they practical jokes a lot. Um, they did this on uh, Maltese Falcon as well. Like whenever a starstruck fan would come to set, uh, they would call a number five. And a number five would mean they'd get into a screaming match with each other. And so then they would just always put people a little bit off, uh, which I love when you're doing a scene. And I know from doing many scenes of sitting around on couches and you have seven people there, if the vibe is right, it's you get a better performance for everybody because in between the takes, that's where the energy has to kind of stay up and have fun. Did you read about the number 10? No, what's the number 10? The number 10. When they called out for a number 10, Peter Lorre would walk out of Mary's dressing room and zip up his pants and yell, thanks, Mary. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Which, by the way, is even more shocking now based on her diaries being leaked, right? I know. And and by the way, like Mary was a person who had been in the public eye forever. She was a silent film actress. She was a teen star. Like She had her first, um, you know, you do a camera test when you're yeah. first getting started. Her camera test was filmed by Lillian Gish. I mean, that's how wow. long she'd been around. And that's how much support she had since she was a teenager. And she had this whole also crazy past even before the diary passed where um, her parents were like the stage parents from hell. And up until the time she was 26, they took all her money and they would give her a $5 a week allowance. And when wow. she finally was like, that's it, I'm breaking off with you guys, yeah. they sued her and she had to pay them an allowance for the rest of her life, which is insane. Whoa. But she's fascinating. I mean, she was actually having an affair with John Huston this whole time because John Huston was always having affairs with everybody. He had an affair with even Olivia de Havilland. I mean, he was a fair dude. But she is just fantastic in this movie. And it's weird how, like, so many people aren't really cast the way that you would expect them to be cast, but then they're perfect. I mean, the way that Sam Spade is written in the books, he's blonde and he's strong. He's, you know, more of, I don't know, a Jack Reacher type. I was going to say, is it like a Jack Reacher situation? Yeah, but I guess this is like casting Tom Cruise as Jack Reacher, which is still the worst thing that ever happened. Um, by the way, I think he could have pulled it off. I mean, Jack Reacher is a great book. Who plays that part, though? I don't know. Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon. Oh, yeah. Is the only Jack Reacher that will ever exist in my heart. That's amazing. I love that casting. Well, Peter Lorre, I thought this may have been one of his first films. It's not. He was in the series... Uh, it's seemingly successful series of films where he played a uh, Japanese detective named Mr. Emoto. Oh, yes. Uh, which, I mean, just from what I've seen of stills seems offensive. He was very famous for that. Yeah. And and it seems like this is a, a smaller part or maybe did it introduce him in a different way? I mean. He'd been kind of rising and falling. Okay. You know, he was getting just the secondary bad B-movie parts too okay. when this yeah. came and then it put him back on the map. Got it. I mean, so much so that he grows up to be literally a leading man. And it's interesting because I think, again, with the Hayes Code, this is a character that's a tricky character to play because in the book, it's definitely more clear that he is a gay man. Uh, and here they talk around it, you know, um, and it's interesting to see like how much they were able to to do with that. Like, again, I'm always amazed at how how you can kind of skirt the system and still be a little bit subversive. They'll yeah, I mean, like, here's the moment where the audience is supposed to know that he is gay. And it's when Evie the secretary brings in the business card that he's left for, for Sam Spade, and they have this exchange. Listen to the music and also the words. 
gardenia. Quick, darling, in with him. Oh, you wow. Come in, Mr. Cairo. You sit down, Mr. Carroll. Thank you, sir. Yeah, those musical cues are yeah. telling you he's whimsical, he's a little wacky, he's not what you think. And then it's like, he's also from vaguely the Middle East. I mean, by the way, what I did love about this sequence, uh, their fight scene is great. When he knocks him unconscious and he goes through his wallet, his passport photo is him in a bow tie as well. Like he's always, <laughs> he made me laugh. But, the, um, but their fight scenes are interesting too. Like this is a, this movie is actually very funny. There's a lot of like humor in the film Especially like the end of this scene where, you know, Humphrey Bogart disarms and beats him up. He wakes up from being unconscious. He asks for his gun back. He gets his gun back and he holds Humphrey yeah, Bogart. I want to actually play that scene because I think it's such a great emotional turnaround that Peter Lorre is doing. Peter Lorre has always been one of my Loki favorite One of actors. my favorites. Oh, let's just appreciate the Peter Lorre in this scene. With discretion, when you wish to contact me, sir, I'm staying at the Hotel Belvedere, room 635. I sincerely expect the greatest mutual benefit from our association, Mr. Slade. Oh, may I please have my gun now? Oh, sure. I've forgotten all about it. You will please clasp your hands together at the back of your neck. <laughs> I intend to search your offices. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> go, go, go ahead. I won't stop you. I mean, that scene is funny. And you know what I'm realizing, too, is I realize now and watching it and kind of seeing that they set him up as being, a, you know, a, a, a gay character, that like Humphrey Bogart's dismissal of him in that final scene is not like, oh, I find you clever. It's almost like, well, I'm not you're not a threat to me, I feel like, which I kind of read differently the first time I, I watched it. That's interesting because, yeah, Humphrey Bogart is always just taking guns away from yeah. Cairo and from Wilmer. Like, he does not care. Yeah. And he makes a point, actually, early on when he's talking to the cops that Sam Spade basically says, I don't really like guns. I don't mm. like to deal with them. I have to have one. It's in my office. I don't really use it. That he's this anti-gun character who spends the whole movie just taking guns away from people. Yeah. But he's taking these guns really easily away from the two characters who, in the book, are very clearly gay. Because in the book... Wilmer is also gay. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's this offhand moment a couple times here where you hear Sam Spade call him a gunsel. He's like, ah, oh, like, make the gunsel take the fall. Yeah. Gunsel is this German word that was kind of a bad slur for gay. Oh, wow. Yeah, it sounds like gunman or something. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah, take it from that, a gunsel. Yeah. And so in the book, it's like more clear that they're sort of a couple. Oh, wow. Or kind of a couple. Or there's something happening with the two of them. Which makes the ending even more upsetting that he's going to take the fall yeah exactly. you know here's this team going around trying to find this artifact and now you know the fat man is sending one of them away and it would be his lover exactly but then you're not sure like there i mean the fat man just seems to love the maltese falcon more than anything even though he calls wilmer like a son to him he's also like but yeah. i can get other sons i love that moment and you're, yeah the loyalties are so fascinating but also when i watch these showdowns between humphrey bogart and everybody else what really makes me laugh is how much bigger Humphrey Bogart looks than everybody because mm. he's a really short guy. Yeah, well, he's fine. Humphrey Bogart is five foot eight, but they shoot him in ways where he looks taller, and they just cast all these little people around him. You know, Peter Lorre is really short. I am obsessed Wilmer with looking really at his short. height because I feel like his pants are up so high. I think there's <laughs> a lot of things that they're doing to obscure the fact, and I always think, oh, that poor actress. And my wife is a, as an actress, and you know, she is 
not even lost parts, but not even been able to go past the first round of auditions because they will go, oh, you're too tall. And that's a, the thing. And I remember uh, another friend of mine, and this is with, you know, Tom Cruise. I feel like Tom Cruise doesn't feel small on screen. He feels small to me on screen. Humphrey Bogart? Yeah. He's so slender. He yeah. looks really breakable. Yeah. he. Always, I mean, like we were talking about how he looked in African Queen and it was like right before he got sick and he never, his body never really changed from that. It seemed like it's more bones than anything else. Like just bones and jackets. <laughs> exactly. But they're like, all right, all right. Peter Laurie, he's five foot three. He'll be, <laughs> he'll be in all the scenes with him. But kind of back to what you were talking about, about this ensemble and about how this is a movie that doesn't really hold your hand. One of my favorite scenes is a scene that takes place when Bogart is in the room, both with Mary Astor and with Peter Lorre. And you're not sure what these characters' relationship is to each other yeah. yet. And they start talking in this shorthand and the movie does not catch you up. But you're like, okay, wait, hold on. What is happening? How do they know each other? Right. What exactly did happen to Floyd? That man. Here? I don't know. I suppose so. What difference does it make? Might make a world of difference. Or you or me. Precisely, but uh, shall we add more certainly the boy outside? Yes. But you might be able to get around him, Joel, as you did the one in Istanbul. Uh, what was his name? You mean the one you couldn't get to come to? <laughs> I mean, a couple of things like this scene doesn't really involve Sam Spade until the very end. But when they start talking like that, you get this zoom into his face as yeah. he's realizing something. He does use this camera in ways to make you know something that the characters are just learning. Like when Wilmer wakes up from being knocked out and they're having this fight about whether or not he's going to take the fall yeah. or not. He looks around and you just have a shot of everybody in close up. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. And he's like, okay, they're setting me up now. Yeah. I'm out. But there's also this fun thing that the camera does that I think is really interesting, where it's always shooting people not looking at each other, but one of them is looking kind of at us. You know, like when Wilmar is caught when he's at the hotel spying on him with the newspaper? Right. There's all these scenes where, like, Sam Spade is talking into his ear or toward him or not looking at his face, but Wilmer's looking at us and we see people's reactions. There's these kind of divisions in eyeline a lot. Ooh, that's interesting. I did not notice that. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. You just see how people aren't totally facing off directly. Like they're being a little bit elusive and they're being a little bit cagey. I feel like that's an interesting way to... In this movie, you don't know who's telling you the truth until the the end. And you don't know, you know, what people's motivations are. I, I will say, though, I don't find Humphrey Bogart to be that ambiguous. I've read a lot about him. I'm like, oh, it's such an ambiguous character. So ambiguous, ambiguous. It's like... Eh. It, it, I think the audience will not know what side he's on. But I feel like he is firmly entrenched. Or do you feel like I'm misreading that and I just assume that once good, always good? I mean, did you think that he's like breaking bad here? And he's like, no, I'll get that money. Like, you know, if, if there was the reveal that the Maltese Falcon was real, would he have gone along with the plan, you think? What do you think? I mean, he said it was going to be a column, a check in her column, but... What do you think? I think he would have done the same exact thing. I think he is willing to take advantage of people. Right. You know, he's willing to shake down as much money as he can from everybody and not really care. And when Mary Astor is like, I don't even have money to live on anymore. He's like, you'll sell something. Yeah. So I do think he doesn't feel a lot of guilt for stuff. 
But I do also believe him. I mean, his reason for turning in Mary Astor at the end is just that it's kind of bad for business. It would be bad for him. Like right. it's, it's very self-interested. It's not so much moral good. Well, that's why I thought the whole reason. And maybe that's what I should be looking at. Because I think the only reason why he does all this is because he needs to clear his own name. He can't be followed by the cops. He knows where his job is. He's not going to be on the run. Um, so maybe just because it's not done out of a sense of loyalty and duty, it's done because he needs to, you know, get himself out of hot water, makes him a more morally ambiguous character. So I take it back. I take it all back. <laughs> did you spot, by the way, our buddy Walter Houston in this movie? I did indeed as the captain. He's the uh, captain uh... of the ship. Uh, and what a fun, uncredited cameo role. I love also the whole reasoning behind that captain. It's like, he gets shot on a fire escape, we find out. He then knocks out uh, the the young punk and then makes it to <laughs> Spade's office with that under his arm. It's such a funny – and I guess, you know, as I'm going through this – and I've seen uh, Maltese Falcon and I've read it even though I don't remember it. Um, it uh, – like it's funny how many of these tropes have been used so much like they um, – Walking in and dying, you know, it, I mean, it's so much more for comedy and, and things like I, I feel like it would definitely happen in Clue and Johnny Dangerously and things like, you know, it's like this idea that someone like this guy walked all the way across town, got in an elevator, uh, hit the button up to the seventh floor. Okay, <laughs> get in. All right. Uh, I am in the room. Uh, look, it's like he, he is acting like he just was shot minutes ago, but he must have really traveled uptown. To 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 get that in that whole way, it just made me laugh. It made me watch the old movie about that guy. It's true. I mean, if I knew that I had twenty five minutes to live or something, I don't yeah. think I would spend it running an errand, yeah. doing a delivery service for somebody <laughs> else. Get this I'm Instacart not even going to get a benefit done. from. I'd probably like, like, can I have one cheeseburger and try to eat a bite of a cheeseburger uh, before I die or something? That's More all you want is that. a cheeseburger before you die. Well, very what else could I get in twenty minutes? I mean, uh, by the way, a good burger, you wouldn't even be able to get in 20 minutes. I feel like you have to order it. <laughs> you want me to go. die hungry? And well, <laughs> it's all coming out anyway. Um, I mean, I, what is funny about that scene, though, is, you know, John Easton, of course, was like, go, 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 shooting everything fast. Yeah. The other one exception he did to his, like, breakneck speed was the scene with his dad. Because, you know, the dad, he comes in, and he's like, ugh, yeah. the, 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 and then he collapses. He just kept making him do that scene over and over and over again and falling down over and over That's and over a, again. Just as a bit? Just as a bit. He thought it was really funny. He was just like, That's... do it again, do it again. And his dad finally snapped. And then the next day, he had um, Mary Astor call his dad, pretending to be his secretary, and say, oh, we messed up. We need you to come in again. <laughs> That is amazing. His dad at this point is a very famous actor, a, a, a long-established working actor. You know, they often say you can't translate, you know, the, the greatness of a book into a film. And, and I think this is an example that kind of proves it wrong. You know, I, I, there are limited examples. But I think movies based on books like this are better. Because it's a clean plot. Like, you don't need to know that much. That's kind of why I'm fascinated by this idea that it was the third time it was done that decade. Right. Because it means odds were you knew what was going to happen. Right. You know, odds were you'd probably read the story. You'd maybe seen one of the two movies. You had an idea who was good, who was bad, how it was all going to shake out. So it wasn't like going to the theater and seeing The Sixth Sense. You know, right. you weren't going for the twist or for the shock. Right. Like, you knew everything. Do you think that maybe expectations were lower and that actually 
made it even better in retrospect? Maybe. Yeah, because it was sold as a B picture. It makes me think of those times that it, maybe the first John Wick is an example. Right. We were like, oh, yeah, it's a dog Keanu movie. And then you're like, oh, that was much better than I thought. Yeah. And everybody sits up straight. Although I will be honest, I think the John Wicks get better as they go along. Absolutely. I think three I mean, is better than yeah. one by a lot. But I mean, but that's okay. I think that's hopefully if we're making sequels, that should be what we're what we're achieving, you know, is yeah. getting better. But I, I agree with you. Like the idea that, you know, it was a first time director, so it wasn't it wasn't a high profile project, you know, like most of their first asks said no, you know, so it it, it did kind of come under the radar. If there is one thing I kind of miss that's in the book that's not in the film. It's just a little bit more of the personality of San Francisco itself. Yeah, this you does know? not feel like a San Francisco film it, at all. It doesn't feel San Francisco at all. And, you know, it takes out things like, I mean, he's living in the Tenderloin District. And if you're ever in San Francisco, the Tenderloin Museum is really interesting because it goes through this whole area and the history of the neighborhood he's living in, which was this really crowded area where people couldn't really afford kitchens. People are going out to oh, eat wow. for most of their meals. You know, it's very urban. It's dense. It's yeah. modern. It's kind of the condensation of all the cool potential yeah. and all the gambling and all the everything interesting yeah. in San Francisco is. And if you go there, I mean, there's all these crazy like Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett tours you can go on. Oh, fun. We actually went to, in the book, he spends a lot of time because he doesn't have that much of a kitchen. He takes a lot of meals at this place called John's Grill, which is this old, old restaurant that's still there. And so when I was there in April, I went and got a martini and I was like, oh, I'm getting a martini. And they call it, I think, like the Dashiell Hammett martini. Everything's oh, wow. named after it. I do love that stuff. I guess the only glimpse you really get of San Francisco is whenever you look out of his window, what's fascinating is it's just words everywhere. Yeah. There's kind of buildings, but it's like fonts. Like this movie is like, I could be a font sexual watching this oh, movie. Oh my gosh. The I mean, fonts are so beautiful. They're like erotic fonts. They're just all different styles. The and way the camera oh. hits the spade and archer font on the floor of the detective office, like this is beautiful. I mean, this movie does have some actually gorgeous looking art you know i mean and i mean i guess we should talk about it with our guest today who can talk a little bit about the actual falcon itself the maltese falcon which was something that was designed by uh john houston on a manila envelope and now has become this treasure replica me bring a guest into this episode. This is a guy who is super smart and you've maybe probably almost definitely seen his face on Mythbusters. His name is Adam Savage. He's a model maker, prop maker, all around man who likes to do things with his hands and also disprove myths. And one of the things that he has been obsessed with is making a perfect replica of the Maltese Falcon. He even gave a tiny TED talk about it. So let's welcome Adam into the room and talk about his quest. So, Adam, you are a master model maker. You've worked on Galaxy Quest, Attack of the Clones, Matrix Reloaded. I'm wondering, could you tell us what are some of the things you've helped make so that people can picture your work and your talent? Well, uh, one, of the, one of the sad things about working in the film industry is that 80 or 90 percent of your time will be spent working on films that are just terrible. Uh, <laughs> So, so you become resistant to tell people, oh, you should go watch this movie because it's a terrible movie. Uh, however, uh, I did get to spend a few weeks working on Galaxy Quest at the very moment at which the crew is pulling out the, the new ship out of the Thermian dock and they scrape against the side of the dock. I actually built the piece of the dock that they scrape against Ooh. that gets this superhero close-up. And so I had to build this with um, hundreds of little transparencies of Thermians standing in the windows that were all backlit. 
so it was not just a physical prop. It was also a lighting and camera prop as well. Uh, I worked on the space shuttle from the movie Space Cowboys, which is a, a sweet movie. Uh, and my particular job was I was in charge of the payload bay, everything inside the opening doors of the payload bay. So in the film, when Clint Eastwood steps out of the airlock into the payload bay of the space shuttle, he's actually stepping into my model. And my model was only 12 inches across and four feet long. And the 12 inches across fills the movie screen around Clint Eastwood. So that's a, a good example of the kind of level of detail that was required from me when I did model making. I love that. And I just want to imagine Clint Eastwood being two inches tall. If that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually only like two and a half inches tall. It's very little, little But still, I, you know, I think it's actually great to shout out props that you're proud of in movies maybe people don't like. Because it to me, it speaks to the fact that a movie is a thing made by hundreds of people. And there could be an actor doing the best work of their life, a prop man making something genius in a film that maybe people don't watch, but they should at least for that. Well, and what you're highlighting is my favorite thing about the film industry, just that the media around a film is usually that there was a singular creator, like the director informed everything and the actor did this great thing. And in fact, every human on the film set is is not just helping to tell the story. They're actively adding their stories to help fulfill the overall vision of the film. Like everybody is layering in beautiful stories into the stuff they make. So, okay, let's talk about your big quest to make the Maltese Falcon. Like, why this quest? Why this bird? It began many years ago on a craft day with my kids when they were probably about seven or eight. I got a bunch of Super Sculpey from the art store, and we were sitting around the kitchen table making stuff. And we were going to make some stuff and then bake it, you know, like Super Sculpey. Uh, that's the way it works. And paint it after it was baked. And my kids were making the stuff that they were making, and I was sort of thinking about this New Yorker article I'd seen a few weeks before about the finding of a, a cache of dodo bones in, in the island of, uh, uh, of Mauritius, where the dodo was found and, and then rendered extinct. And this, this picture from the New Yorker article was so evocative to me, and it was just this close-up of a dodo skull that's in the Museum of Natural History in London. And I decided to start to replicate it. So I made it out of Sculpey. I made a dodo skull out of Sculpey uh, as best I could from the reference that I had. The thing is, is that in the film industry, I was what was known as a hard-edged model maker. Right? I did spaceships, cars, things that were not sculptural, things that were not organic. Uh, and the organic stuff was not my expertise. I'm not an excellent sculptor. But I made this dodo skull, and it kind of... It inspired me, and I ended up over the next few weeks making an entire dodo skeleton out of Super Sculpey, um, piece by piece, bone by bone. Uh, I still have it. I have this beautiful skeleton. It's not necessarily super accurate, but it emboldened me to think about objects that I'd always wanted a perfect version of that I might be able to sculpt myself. And that's when I alighted on the Maltese Falcon, and I started what is now, I think, I'm in the 12th year of trying to replicate the Maltese Falcon, maybe 13 years. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of years. Like, what is it about this bird that makes it so iconic and a little tricky? Well, for me, it becomes, it becomes a quest for a certain kind of authentic experience. So it's not just about replicating the object perfectly. So I sculpted my first Maltese Falcon now about 12 or 13 years ago. And 
I'm pretty happy with it. The reference material I had was great, but in the process of making it and casting it, and I took some shortcuts that a hard-edged model maker takes to get things to be a little bit better, I ended up with a bunch of shrinkage, because every time you mold and cast something, you, you lose a little size in the process. And so the Maltese Falcon that I finished back then, about a dozen years ago, is too small by about an inch and a quarter to the real one. And as long as I knew that there's a more authentic possible bird for me to have, I, ne- I, was, I was just ever so slightly unsatisfied with that output. And that led me to want to do a more accurate one. So then I did a talk that ended up on the TED network about the Maltese Falcon and uh, a, a collector who had a casting, a first-generation casting off a real bird, um, and I can't say anything more than that because they've asked me to keep this a secret. They let me have an audience with the casting that they had. And it, it, it gave me some topological details that I hadn't gotten before. So last year, uh, I set out to re-sculpt the bird, this time starting off a little bit oversized so that when I lost some size in the generational castings, I would end up with the bird that was the correct size. Uh, and so now I have this wax master. I have, I have a couple of them uh, of, a, of a correct Maltese falcon. Still, this requires me to get it to a foundry, to get it cast in bronze, and then there's the whole process of, of, of polishing and, and refining the bronze and then aging it. That's, again, still another several months at least before I, before I have this bird 2.0 in my hands. I mean, your quest to make this perfect bird, it makes me think of the movie itself, this idea of wanting something so much in this moment where you think you're finally holding it in your hand. There is something totally analogous. You're completely right. And it, it took me a long time because people ask me all the time, like, what, where do you draw the line in fidelity for movie props? Right? Like, I have an R2-D2 in my, in my shop here. I built it from scratch. And there are aspects of it that aren't nearly as good as some other fan-made R2-D2s that are far better made. So what is it? where do I draw the line in each project? And it took me a long time to realize that where I draw the line is in this I want an experience that feels truthful to me. So for me, the Maltese Falcon, I don't necessarily need to have it in lead, but I really do want it in bronze. And when I have it in bronze, it's going to weigh like 40 pounds. It's going to be this impossibly heavy thing. But in bronze at 40 pounds, polished and blackened, that's the experience I want from the Falcon. I want this this physical relationship with it that feels authentic. And... Yeah, within the film, obviously, everybody has an association with the bird and what it represents, whether it represents uh, freedom or power or the solving of a mystery or retribution. Uh, everyone in the film is bringing, bringing that frame, their lens to the bird and imposing it upon it, just as I am. And you confess something in your TED Talk that made me do a double take, which is how how exact you are in even the way you wrap the bird? When I'm working on a project, uh, it's hard to be 100% focused solely on the one thing. Like your brain gives out after a while. And so for me, when I'm, when I'm replicating something, uh, I'll often think about, I'll often take a break from the replication grind and think about like what other things could go with this, right? So... For instance, with the bird, what is it? What pedestal does it sit on? How will people interact with it in my house? And then I thought, 
you know, it'd be really awesome if I wrapped this in a San Francisco 1940s Chinese newspaper. <laughs> so I managed to buy a 1940s Chinese newspaper on eBay and I sent it to FedEx Kinko's and they made me a bunch of sheets of printed newsprint. And yeah, when I, uh, when I first finished The Bird, and this would be, I think I finished a set of castings in 2010, I actually sent a bunch of them to friends of mine, people like John Landis and Rick Baker and other filmmakers that I love. And each one of them got it wrapped in a Chinese newspaper um, stuffed into a burlap sack. And that's also part and parcel of me wanting to give them that authentic experience, that like that delightful unwrapping when you see that whoever's wrapped the thing that you're holding has gone this extra mile for, for that experience, that bit of theater, uh, it's to me that's that's it's part of the generosity of of giving the thing away is giving the experience with it. I mean, you must be awesome to know at Christmas, uh, and, mm. <laughs> and and also, I mean, you are of course one of the hosts of MythBusters, which makes me really want to talk to you about all the myths and legends and stories about the various Maltese Falcon props. I mean, in the time between when you started to make this and now, the real pop prop was actually sold at auction for. Over $4 million, which blows my mind. Yeah, and I believe, if I'm not incorrect, that it was purchased by Steve Wynn. The casino um, guy. Yes. Uh, but so many of the birds, like there's been two lead ones sold at auction. There's one resin one, which I believe is absolutely also the one that they use mostly in the filming. Um, there's a couple that have been stolen over the years out of people's collections. And then there's also the legend of Fred Sexton, who, who sculpted the bird. And I actually have in my files a receipt from production. Like they paid him a hundred bucks or something like that to sculpt this bird. And Sexton was a weird guy. Um, supposedly, he hung out with George Hodel, who many think was the Black Dahlia killer. Yeah, um, and who was married to John Houston's ex-wife. George Hodel had this whole... Yes. Yeah. Um, in my desire for completionism, I actually own a painting by Fred Sexton. Whoa, um, what's the painting that, of? Well, it's a, so a friend of mine is a, a mid-century art collector and dealer, occasional dealer, and he, he let me know that a Fred Sexton painting was for sale at auction for a very reasonable price, and I, I managed to purchase it. And it's, um, it, it is abstract, there is some sort of figure in the middle, and there's a lot of lines crossing the figure. But if you realize that Fred Sexton might have had, um, let's just put it in the most broad possible sense, um, weird, weird feelings about women, um, it's pretty clearly the torso of a woman that is like sort of dissected into a bunch of chunks. <laughs> it's fucked up is what it is. But it's like, I, I've got this thing made by the guy who sculpted the Maltese Falcon. and it feels like it feels like a, a go with, right? As a collector would say, it's, 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 it's important that it belongs in my collection. I mean, let's be kind of blunt. Like the lore I've heard is that if Fred Sexton didn't kill the Black Dahlia, he at least knew that his friend did, or he knew something. Yeah, that's that's part of this messed up legend, and this painting doesn't help his case at all. Like it definitely <laughs> speaks to someone who had issues with women. I mean, if you were alive in the 1500s, would your dream job be being hired to be that guy making the jewel-encrusted falcon to give as tribute? 
Ooh, what a lovely question. I have spent time thinking about that. I, I do think that given my mental makeup, that my proclivities, that yeah, in the 1500s, I certainly would have been someone who would seek out a kind of guild position that gave me access to a lot of different processes. Because that's my, that's my jam. It wouldn't necessarily just be carpentry or pottery. And yeah, when I read about um, like Fabergé's workshop, he's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, when I read about his workshop, I'm stricken with how moved I am by by what it would have been like to have a big running shop back then with all your apprentices and all these different processes that you could that you could apply to make these beautiful objects. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that I might have done. Oh, I love it. Well, Adam, thank you again. This has been so fun talking to you today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I Absolutely. really appreciate it. Have a lovely Monday over there. You know. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's funny, uh, when we're talking to Adam there, I was actually thinking in my head that my stepfather, a very serious man, uh, a a psychotherapist, he had in our house a sculpture of the Maltese Falcon. And I realized like, oh, wow, that's kind of like his Funko. You know, like the idea that it it was classic, it was on a shelf and he loved this movie and, you know, wanted this, you know, this prop from this movie, you know, a recreation of it. But I do feel like, I love that even back then in the 40s, you know, this idea of like wanting this and, and the idea that, you know, there were these auctions and this, you know, that this is this is a, like truly a piece of prop memorabilia that people wanted back then as much as now. It's not like just in retrospect. Yeah, I, I actually have my own little falcon. You do? I do. It's little. It was made in one of those 3D printers. Oh, nice. Yeah. You know, my best friend, Eva. Yeah. Her dad loves the Maltese falcon. He okay. loved the Maltese falcon a lot. Her, her brother is actually named Dashiell. And so when he got a 3D printer, he just made a bunch of Maltese falcons. And it's my prized possession. I love it. And I think this is a dad movie. Like, this is a a movie that, like, dads that were uh, of a certain age really came to. I mean, it was like, because it is like a a cool detective story. I mean, it's the movie that you hear people talk about a lot. And I don't know if that's just because it's a movie that, you know, I think it was the one of the first films admitted into the National Film Registry in 1989, you know, um, its first year of being open. But it is, it's one of those films that I think has this kind of aura to it that in a way, I'm going to be honest, Amy, I enjoyed this movie. I love the performances. I'm all in. Watching it again after watching all these films that we've watched, 
I was expecting it to even be bigger and and more bombastic. And it's it's not. It's a very simple, well-told story. And I'm not saying it should be off the list. No one freak out. I'm just saying that it, it almost casts a bigger shadow than the movie itself. I would agree with that. I think that this is a movie that is just small and perfect. You yeah. know, it's hard to find a chink in it. It's hard to say, like, oh, I would take that out. It's you know, efficient it's just, as hell. Yeah. It's just the perfect, flawless B movie that is actually an A movie because it's so good. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't come in with a lot of swagger. So it's, it, I don't know, it feels like it feels like an iron Maltese Vulcan or a lead right. one. You can't crack it. You can't break it. It's just perfect as it is. Yeah. I mean, what was the reaction to this film when it came out? Uh, everybody loved it. I had to look really, really hard to find anything negative about this movie. Everybody kind of lost their minds. They just thought it was terrific, great, fun, amazing, blah, 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 blah. Um, the one review that I could find that, like, said anything about it that was negative, well, I found two. One just said offhand that Bogart was perhaps, quote, a little too clever to be credible, as in most detectives should be dumber. But you know what? This is coming off an era where all the detectives were incredibly smart, and I thought one of the things that I read in my research was – the real interesting turning point was that he was an everyman. He wasn't, you know, he didn't have a lot of things at his disposal. And his wits are really just reading human interactions. It's not like he didn't figure out the plot. He asks at the end, what happened? And they tell him, like, you know. <laughs> I mean, what I like about him is he's not the strong, silent type. I mm -hmm. get really bored a lot of the time with the strong, silent type. Yeah. I like that he's like the loudmouth little guy type. Right, right, right. He just happens to be taller than all the other tiny people But isn't people Michael Shannon a tall, silent type? I bet he talks. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you think? Have you heard Michael Shannon's band? Um, no, I have not. I will quickly Google that tonight. But you know what? I guess they're actually I'm, pretty good. They're on Spotify. I, I I will check it out. But no, I'm thinking about the night before that Seth Rogen movie that he plays, like you know, some version of like an a a drug dealing taxi angel and he's very funny in that because he actually speaks a lot like you don't i think it was part of the fun of it is that he he doesn't speak that much so you're like oh this is a a fun turn here but go sorry yes go ahead <gasps> okay so then the citizen news loved it but they made this one paragraph right in the middle of the review that they printed in bold and they printed it in bold because it was all their problems with the film so they just okay. sort of bolded it in the middle and then continued raving about it on the rest of the page but they said quote one can nevertheless find many faults in the Maltese Falcon. They are the faults characteristic of the work of the school of glib mystery fictioneers to which Hammett belongs. When a detective fools around with a gunman the way that Sam fools around Wilbur, the detective simply gets shot and killed. It was awfully stupid of Sam to drink that drugged highball after outwitting his adversaries so cleverly in many other respects. And one can conclude he did it because Hammett and Houston just had to get on with the story. What? When Sam, near the conclusion, all of a sudden reels off all the facts of the various murder cases, you know that there is only one way he could have found them out. In the words of the familiar radio gag, he must have read the script. Wow, that's so funny. I love that. That like, <laughs> I would drink a highball. I, I will definitely die with a drunk, drugged highball. I mean, why not? Like, I mean, I feel like he got comfortable, and that was, that was I think, to uh, Sidney Greenstreet's credit of... Figuring out, okay, you know, Sam Spade played him in the beginning, or did he? We don't know. When he fakes that temper tantrum, and then then he plays him, like they understand, but they that seemed like they drugged him as a secondary thought, which I love. It was like, oh, we figured it out. See you. Yeah. We're done. And also, government has been planting all these things in there about a man he can't trust. Like, if you don't drink, I don't trust you. Right. If you uh, talk to, don't talk enough, I don't trust you. Um. Well, Amy, 
what do you think? I mean, does this movie belong on the AFI list of the hundred best films? I mean, yeah, probably, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think it has to because it has this classic aura to it. We have great detective stories, and I think we've continued to make great detective stories. Um, you know, I mentioned uh, Usual Suspects before. I think that's a really well-crafted film. I think that Double Indemnity is an amazing example of exactly what we're talking about. But I was thinking as I was driving over here today, we have a lot of Humphrey Bogart on this list. We do. And, and you know, for a list that's supposed to be representative of the best we have to offer, could we lose a Humphrey Bogart? Could we do like, uh, you know, could we could we get one or two off the list? We need. Well, I think what I'm I'm just remembering offhand, but I think four or five Humphrey Bogarts on yeah. this list. I mean, I think the easiest one is we're getting rid of African Queen, probably, right. which is also a Houston movie. Yeah. Also a Bogart movie. Yeah. We already have a Catherine Hepburn movie. I think we can be at peace with it. Yeah, absolutely. And also, we had this talk with Chinatown. Like, we have movies on this list that do what Chinatown does mm -hmm. and do it well enough that do we really need it with Another everything version. else with all the baggage that chinatown has and then there's this other, other argument like well this is the first this is kind of this started like without this is there chinatown because this movie has a lot of dna that's similar to chinatown i feel like it's true and i feel like also when i was watching this i was seeing all the dna that this movie has with films that i mean it felt like it was kind of distant echoes you know that i was seeing in this film of like what filmmakers might have picked up from it yeah like i want to play the scene where they get the falcon and everybody's tearing at it. And it's the story told a lot in music and then in reaction. Joke. Now tell us about it. No, Sam, no! That's the one I got from Kamenov, I swear it! You. It's you who bungled it. You and your stupid attempt to buy it! Kamenov found out how valuable it was. <laughs> no wonder we had such an easy time stealing it, you, you imbecile, you bloated idiot! You stupid fathead, you... <laughs> I mean, yeah. I had to play that because then you hear Cairo sob in the corner. And then a beat later, you get this reaction from Gutman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the Russian's hand. There's no doubt about it. Well, so what do you suggest? We stand here and shed tears and call each other names? Or shall we go to Istanbul? Are you going? Seventeen years I wanted that at him, and I've been trying to get it. We must spend another year on the quest. Well, sir, it'll be an additional expenditure in time of only five and fifteen seventeenths percent. I'm going with you. I wanted to play all yeah. that because I love the optimism and sort of the yeah. Scarlet, Scarlet O'Hara-ness of like, well, tomorrow's another day. We're going to go get the Falcon. Yeah, I did. I felt that way too when I watched it. There's something so sweet. There's so much. And you talk about the turn of emotion. 
There we go. I mean, Peter Lorre is doing so much in this film, and I and I really appreciate. It. But this, you want to go see the next adventure. You want to see them in Budapest. You do. And then I was thinking, there's another film on this list that I feel like definitely put this into its DNA. I'm just gonna jump into this clip and uh, yell at your speaker if you recognize what this is. Okay. Doesn't it feel like it's there, that there's in that laugh, in that yes. sorrow, and that, in that anticipation of what is in this package? Absolutely. Yeah, I totally do. All right, Raiders. Then the timestamps make sense, too. You know, same era, same everything. It does. It I has a similar, I mean, and there's even a similar look between Peter Lorre and the, the searcher of that, uh, I forget his name. I'm a bad nerd. But, uh, <laughs> bad nerd. Bad nerd. Well, you know how bad nerds get punished? Wow. Bad nerds get punished. Oh, no. What are you going to make me watch? (laughs) You know, there is a band Mm -hmm. from the 80s, a metal band from Denmark. Their name is the Maltese Falcon. Okay. They're awesome. And this is their biggest hit. It's called Metal Rush. All right. This is not as bad as I would expect. I'm into it. I like it, Amy. I'm into it. I will say they also have the most badass logo. It's like yeah. Maltese Falcon, but it's like all metal and it's like It looks what? a little Nazi-ish, but extended <laughs> out. Like it looks oh, a little, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Uh, Scandinavia. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, um, is there a Simpsons? Wow. Not really. What? Wow, that's is, surprising to me. Okay. It, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. It seemed like a, a gimme. The closest thing I could find to a Simpsons reference is in, actually, an episode of The Simpsons written by somebody you just name-checked, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg. They wrote an episode called Homer the Whopper. This is the one where Homer gets cast as Everyman, the superhero comic book. And they have this montage early on in the episode where you see the comic books getting delivered to all these comic shops. One of the comic shops is called... The Maltese Vulcan. And there's, you know, Star Trek dude, like, working at the comic book shop. Yeah. So the Maltese Vulcan was the closest I could get. But I pulled a clip from this episode anyway just because it made me think of us. All right, what's our next big summer franchise? Come on. You want an original idea? Yes. Let your imaginations run free. Something that's never been a movie before, but feels like it has. Extension cords. Mixed nuts. Car keys. We've already made everything that could possibly be a movie into a great movie. That's really funny. (laughs) That also sounds just like Pixar. Extension cords. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? uh, Speaking about the inspiration for the Maltese Falcon, not necessarily the uh, the Maltese animals that you were naming. Not the Maltese indigenous goat? Yeah, not that. The original inspiration for the Maltese Falcon was... This um, object that was owned by the Duke of Devonshire, 
uh, and it was called the Kiphausen Hawk, or if you can pronounce it better than me, Isn't I don't know. Isn't that a Bruce Willis movie? <laughs> <laughs> that was the original title. That's why it didn't do well. Um, but this when is going to be King George William von Kniphausen, Count of the Holy Roman, Roman Empire, Lord of Nienar, and its territory of Vreldeward, dedicated this eagle bestangled with gems to eternal remembrance and ordained that this goblet, flashing with ruby wings and resembling the sign of the ancient family of Ordia, which is now called Ninordia, should remain forever in the possession of the illustrious lords of the castle of Nienar in the territory of Vreldeward in the year of 1697 in memory, Hawk. I, that was what it's going to be called? Uh, yes, yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> Sorry, I really wanted to read all that to see I if I could. I loved all that. Sorry, I got really excited to talk about the Knipphausen hawk, and I just rambled at you. But I think it's, I don't know how I feel about the idea that this hawk is sort of real, because the beautiful idea of this movie is like, eh, the chase of nothing. Questing, that the quest is sort of the pleasure, the point, the purpose, that there is no hawk at the end of this movie that they can claim. I think there's something lovely about this vaporousness of it. I mean, even the well, ending even the ending line of the movie, which is something apparently that Humphrey Bogart made up. I heard that. It's kind of like his, it just shows his wealth of knowledge that he's able to like kind of do a twist of Shakespeare. Exactly. Let's play that and then let's play the Shakespeare. Harry, what is it? The uh, stuff that dreams are made of. Our revels now are ended. These our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, that was Sir John Gilgood, and you're absolutely right. There's this echo in there of Prospero's speech at the end of The Tempest, which I love because it's also... Kind of describing a movie, you know, yeah. the story has ended, the players have played their part, and these are the things that dreams are made of. So for the Maltese Falcon to end on that note is beautiful. And I would argue that, you know, who knows if it's real? It's just what these guys do. We don't know. We don't know if it, you know, we don't, this is their quest. Um, but if someone does ask you what the last line of the Maltese Falcon is, do not say that. If the last <laughs> line is, Huh? <laughs> So, and that is the last yeah. line of this podcast. <laughs> so next week, we are going back to the romantic comedy. Well, hurrah, with the movie The Philadelphia Story. Now, if you have not seen The Philadelphia Story, I don't think I'm spoiling too much to say that there is a love triangle in it between Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, and Jimmy Stewart. So what I want you guys to do for next week's episode is to cast this movie in 2019. Who would you put as your ideal sexy love triangle? So lie back, close your eyes, think about who you would love to see tussle for one another's hearts and souls, and then give us a call at 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824 for your Philadelphia Story Love Triangle. And we'll see you next week.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.